Hello, I'm Paul Boney, the managing partner of Whitkiefer's uh, Healthcare Practice. I want to welcome you to our conversation, uh, which is around building bridges in a new era of collaboration in healthcare. Um, so one thing that became clear right away in COVID in the early stages is that uh, provider health systems had to reach out and collaborate with other organizations, uh, existing stakeholders, uh, but also new types of, uh, of stakeholders and organizations and uh, competitors. Orchestrating many of these uh, collaborations across providers and related organizations are state health and hospital associations. Uh, we're extremely uh, fortunate today to be joined by uh, three highly respected health and hospital association CEOs for a substantive discussion around their learnings, their views, and examples of collaboration. And we believe uh, these examples of uh, collaborative, bold, uh, innovative leadership uh, are to be honored and to be shared. Uh, and this is a central goal for having uh, this discussion today. We want you, uh, our viewers, uh, to learn more about these models and these principles so that you can apply them as we uh, go forward. So uh, looking forward to diving into models of collaboration between organizations, uh, processes and examples that have emerged through COVID and uh, importantly, how these three leaders are serving their communities. So let me briefly introduce our guests uh, today and uh, full biographical uh, information uh, can be found through the links that will be attached to this association. Uh, or this session, excuse me. Uh, first, uh, allow me to introduce uh, someone I've had the pleasure of knowing for nearly 20 years. Uh, sorry, B, if that dates I us know. a little bit. I'm flies. Uh, B. Yeah. <laughs> Grouse, uh, who is the CEO of the Healthcare Association of New York State, uh, Haney's. B, uh, glad to have you with us today. Great to be here. Thank you. And uh, Steve Walsh, who is uh, officed uh, about a mile from me uh, here in uh, Burlington, Massachusetts, who is the CEO of the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association. Uh, Steve, great to see you. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me, Paul. And uh, Ted Shaw, uh, CEO of the Texas uh, Hospital Association. I know my Texas-based colleagues and others at the firm have enjoyed a long-standing connection with THA. Ted, thanks for making time uh, this afternoon. Looking forward to helping. Great. Well, before we jump in, you know, I first want to thank uh, all of you and your teams uh, for the tireless, uh, substantial leadership that uh, you have been uh, providing. I, I think through COVID, you know, it certainly demonstrated the uh, vibrant mission and the critical role that the three of you and your teams play in supporting communities. So thank you, uh, first of all, for your uh, leadership in this time. So, so let me uh, dive right into our discussion. And uh, Steve, I'd, I'd like to tee off with you, if I might. And you, know, you and I had a chance to talk in uh, early March during the early uh, phases of this challenge when the, the issues of ambiguity of PPE and bed capacity were, were certainly heightened. And in that conversation, you gave some examples, frankly, I found compelling and that actually uh, helped to germinate the idea of this discussion. Share with us, if you might, some of the ways in which, you know, you've been uh, convening members, maybe some of the examples of where you have seen, you know, bold, innovative, collaborative leadership from your platform. 
Thanks, Paul, and uh, thanks to, to you and Wood Kiefer for your leadership during a tough time. And to my colleagues uh, uh, that are joining us today, I have to say that we, we, it hit us here in Massachusetts a little bit later. And the learning that we got from B and her team is really one of the reasons why we were able to work through the crisis um, better than some of the other states were able. Uh, B was so gracious and generous with her time and with her best practices as they were really uh, seeing an enormous wave of pressure through New York um, that we in Massachusetts really owe her debt of gratitude. Um, and, and Ted um, really gave us a masterclass on how to engage our members. And from early on, we were borrowing Ted's daily updates to his membership in Texas uh, and what a tremendous path he paved for us in terms of how to make sure we engage our members. And, and that learning from being tanned up in Washington State is really what, um, what we, we put into practice here in Massachusetts. And, and what I found to be so remarkable about the effort was there was no longer this hospital or that hospital, proper name hospital. We really became one hospital. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts had one hospital based on the leadership of Governor Baker, Secretary Sutters, the credentialing changes that they made, we were really able to share resources, beds, staff, ventilators, personal protective equipment in each and every hospital across the Commonwealth. And that is how we were able to combat uh, throughout April, the surge that we felt here. And so it started here in Massachusetts in the Berkshires and our colleagues offered our, 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 uh, our colleagues in the Berkshires assistance. And then it moved into Springfield and then Worcester and it came East. And in each and every way, our CEOs were collaborating in ways that I had never seen before. I'm not sure they had ever seen it before. We were on the phone every morning at 7 a.m. And every morning we would review our ICU bed capacity, our med surge bed capacity, our ventilator capacity, our PPE, and our testing limitations or challenges. And we would talk about what each incident commander in each region of the Commonwealth needed in order to be able to meet the demands of the patients on that particular day. And as our colleagues in other states know, they set aside elective visits, they set aside scheduled visits, they set aside any opportunity they would have to generate every, any revenue that hospitals would need to operate in the traditional sense, only to make sure we had enough capacity to meet the needs of our patients. And so we stood up six field hospitals outside of the walls of the hospital. We, had, we have about 15,000 beds um, at baseline, and we thought we might need upwards of 30,000 beds in order to, to, to move through our largest surge. We built about 9,000, and that ended up being enough. But we had always said, if we build it, we hope they don't come. We really hope that we always have capacity in order to meet the demands of our patient population, um, and it worked pretty well. Now, as we see in other parts of the country, Ted knows better than any of us. It's not over. It has come back in many parts of the country and we expect a resurgence here in the Northeast in the fall. And so these lessons learned in this little bit of downtime that we have in Massachusetts, and I'm sure it feels the same way in New York, it's about what did we learn? How could we do better the second time? How can we manage the needs of our patients? Because one of the concerning trends is that um, non-COVID related sick people were staying home. And we wanna make sure that people need the services of our hospitals are coming in to get the care they need and not staying home because they're afraid of COVID. So when patients started to come back, we were seeing some really sick folks 
that were that were representing in the hospital because they had been afraid to come through COVID. So I would say that that I think the 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 biggest factor that I point to, and you acknowledged it in the beginning, is the collaboration. It was amazing how competition melted away in the name of public health and public safety, and we became one common wealth working on behalf of our residents and our patients to try to meet the the demands of this serious virus. Thanks, Steve. That you know, B, talk a little bit about how you saw those models with your members. You know, certainly the issues uh, that impacted New York State are, are well known early on. Yeah. Talk about some of your reflections and the learnings that you saw from those early chapters of this. Yes. Um, you know, I I remember vividly um, March second uh, when we when I got a call from the governor Governor Cuomo's office that he wanted uh, me to come down to New York City to do a press conference because they had identified the first COVID case. And he was rolling out his plan. And during that plan, he said by the end of the week, he wanted to get to 500 tests a day. And it, you know, just in, uh, you know, four months, we are, you know, we, we accelerated from there and are now um, on the back end, but even you know today, our our testing capacity is hundred times that. Um, and uh, after that, it was uh, it was like the, we all got shot out of a cannon after that that March second date. And um, you know, as you know, we have a very active governor, so we were all keen off of the governor's daily press conferences, and we had daily. Uh, we had a daily conference with uh, the governor's staff uh, every morning at nine o'clock, I believe, and uh, you know reviewed uh, the data, what was happening. Uh, they um, uh, they you know we quickly had to work to set up uh, what's the right information to know. We didn't have the right uh, the the state wasn't collecting the right data from the hospitals. So there was a lot of scrambling at the beginning to try to get that bigger picture of what was uh, what was changing, um, you know, literally on an hourly basis. So we played a lot of catch up in those days, and uh, and you know, and I think uh, really we're very task focused on how we were going to try to uh, anticipate, you know, a week or two weeks down the line. So. My reflection on those first couple of weeks was just, uh, you know, it took us a couple of weeks to really get a handle on what was happening. And then working very, very closely with the governor's office to get those executive orders, uh, address liability issues, and try to stay ahead of some of the many issues that uh, fortunately he was able to uh, address uh, in the declaration of emergency, um, um, sorry, the uh, emergency declaration and all of the waivers that followed there. So it was, it was a big scramble in the beginning, and then, uh, and then we continued to scramble for two months after that. But it was at least we had the data that we were looking for. Yeah, thanks, B. You know, Ted, Steve uh, made reference to your models of member engagement. Yeah, share with us some of your reflections, the learnings that you've had, and some of the examples of collaborative uh, convening that, that you've done at THA. You know, we're lucky also in that we were hit slowly at least, and, and then it's obviously accelerated recently. And there were the learnings and watchings of what was happening in New York and in Washington that 
made us aware. And so we began early on having uh, two uh, huddles a day with uh, all of our, uh, what I call our COVID team. Uh, and they would each um, uh, meet with either the state health departments or the governor's office. And we would make sure that communication was robust uh, to our members uh, every day, uh, seven days a week as we started up. And a uh, number of things on that area is, is we built upon the history that we had in Texas of, of disasters. But what we learned quickly was disasters like hurricanes are, are one place. Uh, and this was hitting everywhere. And even in uh, when we had a hurricane disaster, we could learn, you know, we could lean on Nebraska or New York or somewhere to send us staff. Well, no, nobody's sending staff. Um, and the other thing that was evident quite early uh, was the PPE supplies and store uh, stockpiles were totally with, uh, inadequate and aged. And nobody was really watching it because nobody thought that we'd have to worry about multiple sites. And so um, uh, our governor took a good leadership in terms of you know, severing uh, or turning off all the non-essential services uh, early on. Uh, it caused a lot of consternation amongst the members. Uh, but uh, while they did that, um, uh, they were able to create uh, an excess of about 80% more uh, COVID beds than what were originally isolated. Uh, so I would tell you that it's the day-to-day -day work, meeting daily with the governor's office and his strike force uh, to make sure that um, communication was done effectively and timely. We're obviously still very much in the midst of this, but you know, at least thus far, you know, what are one or two of the COVID-related initiatives that you've helped to advance that, that you're most proud of? I mean, you've given examples of models of convening. What comes to mind when you think about what you're you're proudest of thus far, uh, Steve? Uh, comments? Yeah, Ted mentioned PPE. I think that was a an early challenge and we, we partnered with the life sciences community here in Massachusetts and they put a call out to all their members and we set up a supply hub and we got probably as much donated PPE as we purchased. It was really remarkable, the collaborative effort among other businesses in terms of helping get us supplies. And so we still are um, really in the, our conference center downstairs, which used to have, you know, almost daily or weekly conferences is really a distribution center at this point. Um, and so I, I think the other uh, leaders in business in, in the Massachusetts economy stepped up. And I think we're pretty proud of that coalition that was that was built. Um, and I would say the other area that we spent a lot of time on, I'm sure my colleagues the same, but the post-acute transitions. We spent a lot of time with the skilled nursing facilities, long-term acute care hospitals, our behavioral health hospitals, because in order to be able to always keep capacity open, we had to continue to move patients through the continuum. And so we needed to make sure that patients were getting to the right place. And we spent uh, you know, hours and hours, I mean, hundreds of hours, uh, setting up post-acute post transitions. Um, and that those relationships are now, they're profound, they're deep. And I think that, that's what comes out of working together in a crisis like this. And so I think those are two areas that and I'm sure my colleagues had similar ones, but um, that, that we, we really felt like we managed fairly well here. B, a comments from you about some sure. of the things and highlights of proud moments thus far. 
Yeah, a couple a couple come to mind. Uh, I would say in uh, staffing um, and uh, PPE and ventilators uh, and um, and also data. And I, I agree with uh, with what Steve said around the long term care facilities too. They were critical players uh, in New York on on maintaining capacity. And um, I'll start with the data. I guess I think. Uh, one of the things I was really proud of uh, for our team and the project that we worked on with the state is they, um, as we were scrambling to try to figure out, the governor wanted a dashboard and he wanted to have all of the data in, uh, in a way that he could communicate because he was having his daily press briefings. And so we got a call for our uh, analytics team to come over and we actually loaned our staff over to the governor's staff to help them build those dashboards. So. I was really proud of that and that everything that uh, folks would see often was built by by our team. And then uh, on the staffing side, it also was a, a collaboration with the Department of Health in that we were trying to import um, healthcare workers from, from all across the country and the globe, frankly. And we helped uh, to build and then also put the policy behind it, a staffing portal that um, that helped to facilitate the um, import of, of uh, physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, and others. And in fact, we're building on that expertise today. We're about to launch a, uh, a website and a program with the Arizona Hospital uh, Association. And, and Ted, if you're interested, I know we reached out to your team as well on staffing issues where we did all of the background and policy work to make sure that the two states were compatible to uh, to transfer actually lease employees from one uh, a, from a New York system to an Arizona system. So we did all that back office work to make sure that uh, the healthcare workers are taken care of from the time they leave New York until the time they return, and to make sure that they know where they're going. So we built all of that back office support and are uh, ready to launch that today. So I'm I'm very excited about that and hope that we can continue. Uh, to do that. And then the final one was on um, PPE generally, but on, on ventilators. We established a ventilator sharing program. As you know, uh, in New York, the pandemic was really concentrated down in the New York City area, which is in the southern end of the state of New York. So 95% of the virus was down there. And then all hospitals were closed, but upstate, there was not the same level of uh, patient acuity at, that there was uh, or overload down in New York State. So we created a ventilator sharing program that again used data to create a dashboard of hospitals that needed ventilators and hospitals that had ventilators to transport. So we've, um, we were able to uh, stand that up pretty quickly and help our members make sure that they, um, they got the ventilators that, that they needed. And we've used that model in other areas as well. Great examples. You know, Ted, share with us some examples that have emerged for you thus far, things that you're proud of that you and your team at uh, THA have helped to uh, advance. Well, I would tell you one of the best things we did is we, we early on decided not to do some of the things that we just had a toe in the water. Uh, for example, we don't, uh, in our state, the Department of Health Human Services is the one that collects the data. Not that they do it well or comprehensively, uh, but we decided not to get in and, and, and try to usurp that, but to augment it. So working with their teams and working with and, and providing the context and contacts to all of our hospitals, we got all the data flowing appropriately. 
and as Steve and, and B will appreciate in Texas, we have 255 counties, uh, their home rules. So those 255 judges that rule those counties uh, or run those counties, depending on how you uh, look at it, um, all have their own data requests. Uh, and so coordinating those and making sure that there are regional uh, emergency response teams uh, were asking for the same data in the same fashion and, and, and uh, facilitating that was a, a major issue and a major plug. And the other one was finding where um, PPE was. Uh, and as opposed to trying to jump in and become a, a, a procurer, what we did is we set up a portal and a website where people could offer to sell supplies and PPE, and then we fed that to the governor's team who would then vet all of those people because uh, for every one good PPE vendor, we found 10 that were just um, uh, perhaps fraudulent, but certainly not effective. Um, and uh, when we saw the prices going from 50 cents a mask to $9 a mask, you can imagine the uh, industries and much less the government's response to that. So finding a way to make sure that that information got to the people that were charged with it and then using the state's uh, emergency management capabilities to deploy all of the PPE uh, once we opened up the air bridge and things to those hospitals. Interesting enough, again, is if we have 255 counties, even today there's, all, there's 10 counties that don't have a single case. Um, so uh, the, it's hard to tell the county judge in that, in, in Hudson mm -hmm. County, um, you know, you need to pay attention. Um, so opening the state became a challenge and working with the governor and trying to give them the information on what they could and couldn't do and to work with his uh, Medicaid, not Medicaid, excuse me, his COVID task force um, to assure that there was information that they got that was timely about capacity, what was going on in our markets. Um, we eventually ended up to where we now have a Tuesday, a Tuesday and Thursday call statewide uh, led by uh, THA, but uh, really it's at the behest of the uh, Department of Health and Human Services is the Dr. Hellerstadt is on that call so he can learn from everybody around the state every Tuesday and Thursday what, what's going on, what are the hot spots, what are the needs. And that has helped really facilitate that communication. That's terrific. I mean, obviously, by what we the virtue of what we do here, we're very passionate about exceptional leadership. And I'd be interested to hear from each of you, I mean, while the issues have been profoundly challenging, what are some of the specific leadership uh, characteristics and competencies that you've seen on display that, that have most inspired you? You know, some of those specific characteristics that you've seen with your members or other stakeholders or with your teams. Steve, your perspective on, on some of those items. Um, thanks, Bob. You know, it, um, I, I, our CEOs are really incredible leaders, and I think we see that across the state, and nowhere was it more on display than during this time and continues to be. I, I think one of the things, you know, that, that, that seems easy, um, but in this time is often taken for granted is that's their ability to simply be honest with the public tell the truth about where we are. And we've all talked about data in various ways, but I think our, our hospital leaders really become a trusted source 
for what's actually happening on the ground and the ability to tell the truth to their constituents as to what's happening, what we're seeing. And it's not always good news. And, and, and like members, the, the first day that she got called, I can remember the first day we had a, the governor on our morning call with our CEOs and we were, uh, seems so long ago, we were, we had just experienced our first death and it was like emotional. And then as the weeks and months went on, there became all too many of them, yeah. but we began to at least talk about it every day with, with honesty, with our schools being visible in their community, with them being accessible to having conversations as to what's happening as we went through some really hard discussions. I know our colleagues did too around crisis standards of care and what might happen in the event that we didn't have enough ventilators, we didn't have enough beds, how those decisions might be made. Those are not easy discussions, but the ability to be transparent and open and honest with the public, with our patients, with our constituents, um, really was a hallmark of this. And I think our CEOs get really high marks um, for the way they conducted themselves with integrity and character throughout very difficult times. They did not shy away from this crisis up and led and I think that's what we needed and I think our our healthcare leaders um, will be able to do that on other important issues now moving forward. Thanks Steve. You know, B, what are some of the characteristics that have emerged sure. for you that you've yeah. been inspired by? Um, I, I think uh, you know building off of what Steve said I, I would echo communication uh, and you can't under communicate and I think the communication clarity and compassion uh, are, are what I heard from Steve, but also what I experienced and what comes to mind for me. And I think it is important to think about how frightened the public was, how frightened our people in our communities were. They didn't know about this virus. No one really understood how you got it. Uh, and so, you know, uh, providing clarity and guidance in a time when you know, the leaders in our, at, at the state and national level were still trying to figure out what was going on was incredibly important. And, and as Steve said, you know, often either the news wasn't good or there just wasn't enough, you know, to go on uh, to really provide that guidance. But I think the communication, the daily communication that happened on many different levels, you know, from the governor on down, I think was, was really important to give people a sense of direction and a sense of hope, and also enough information for them to make their own decisions. And I think it's been really evident here in New York where the governor, like take the mask issue, for example, wearing a mask. He, he put out a contest uh, to, uh, to pick the best commercial and ask, you know, uh, crowdsource, you know, open source to people could submit their own videos and they, they picked them and they're, you know, they're, they're playing those, but he's really created a cultural um, message of, of obligation and respect and caring for your fellow um, human being, citizen, to wear a mask. And you see a lot of compliance with mask wearing in New York, where, you know, when I open my phone and I read about other states that people are really pushing against that. And I think the one example I would, uh, think it would like to mention is with uh, with the masks wherein they made a, a significant push 
uh, for all New Yorkers to wear a mask. He, he helped uh, New Yorkers submit videos to produce uh, mask, uh, you know, uh, ads, so to speak. And, and I think it has paid off. I think that, uh, that you rarely see uh, anybody on the streets of New York without a mask. And, and there's a really increased the compliance is to, you know, is his commitment to talk about that all the time and make it a priority. Yeah. Ted, what, Ted, what leadership um, has been on display for you that you've been most inspired by thus far? I think it's the, um, the willingness of each of these markets uh, to work because while we're awfully proud of being in Texas and it's so big, the problem is, is you're like in a bunch of different states and there's none of them that are the same. And so it was interesting to see how Houston and Southeast Texas pulled together as a consortium uh, and shared beds, shared communication on a daily basis. They have a 7 a.m. call. Similarly in Dallas, the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council convened a CEO call once a week and a daily bed call. Uh, same, those same things happened in Austin, San Antonio, and West Texas. So they began ma managing things on an individual market basis, not an individual system basis, but as a market, uh, whether or not it was a, a, a large for-profit system or a large not-for-profit system. They sat around the same phone call uh, and facilitated working with each other. So that ability to, to put the patient first um, and to, to be concerned about that. The other is the strength of uh, willing to take a risk. Uh, in a couple of cases, we had some uh, early on uh, where everybody was questioning the ability to do testing because we had, if anything, a lack of testing supplies. We had a couple of systems that actually stepped up and, and put some on-campus drive-by testing capabilities. Uh, that weren't proven or, or uh, uh, even supported at that point. Uh, and those worked out well. Uh, we had another couple uh, leaders who actually took some of their facilities and converted them from uh, a, a, a post-acute care system or a surgical center uh, and made them a COVID unit uh, and dedicated COVID, COVID staff to them so they got consistent treatment. And we've been very lucky in terms of things here that our length of stays are usually shorter and the therapies that we've developed have been uh, pretty uh, amazing. Um, that, but like everybody else, we're uh, short on supply, uh, whether it be remdesivir or whether it be staffing. And right now it's certainly staffing. Uh, as the second surge or second wave has hit, I may have to take a, a be up on our offer to find some um, shared staffing because I'll, right, be, I'll be working with you. <laughs> good. Well, we have we've we sent some your way, and now it'll be our yeah, turn to get absolutely. Back. You got it. You got it. Re real time yeah. collaboration uh, right here. So, <laughs> well, no, one of the neat things about being on we have a group of all the hospital execs, hospital association execs called okay. Shape. And when we ran into a problem or if we wanted to share something, we put the shape list and it's, you know, you get 40 out of 50 responses every day. It was absolutely amazing. So uh, am I still on? I thought I lost You're myself on. there. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and I really do appreciate that, that list. Sometimes we take each other for granted, but it's amazing the insights you get and how you can help each other. Um, so I, I appreciate that. And, and the one thing I, will go uh, never say enough about is my team. 
my team has worked 24 seven for four months without complaining, very seldom taking a day off. And uh, uh, they outpace me and out, outshine me every day. You know, sw switching gears, share with us, Steve, perhaps some of the, the headlines of the more pressing advocacy issues that uh, you're seeing, you know, right now for for your members and uh, B and uh, Ted will ask the same question. But, you know, Steve, share with us, you know, some of the things that are really front stage for you right now from an advocacy standpoint. Yeah, look, I think that the things we talk about as successes continue to be our greatest challenges. PPE being first and foremost. I mean, never before have healthcare providers had to compete with Main Street America for personal protective equipment. I mean, there are people that are buying infrared thermometers and gloves and masks and gowns that never did before. And you can't blame folks. I mean, they're trying to get the economy going again. There are people that have lost a lot in their own personal business and in the economy. And um, everybody wants to be able to be safe. Uh, but this is not anything that we've experienced before. And if there's a resurgence in the fall or when there's a resurgence in the fall here, it's just gonna be that much more difficult uh, to get PPE. And Ted talked about, you know, one out of every, I mean, we got a shipment of masks to a local community hospital, certified, NIOSH stamped, you know, counterfeit, right? And, and, and those stories have been uh, all over the country. I mean, really, uh, what, a, what an incredible time for be, people to be taking advantage, but that, that just happens. And so that's going to continue to be an issue for us. Finances are going to continue to be an issue, right? It hurts. It's, it's as large and larger in other states, certainly in New York and Texas, but Massachusetts, our hospitals are going to lose $5 billion by Labor Day. When they talked about Major League Baseball not having a season, they were concerned because Major League Baseball would lose $4 billion. Well, Massachusetts hospitals are going to lose five. Um, and so it's a, it's a serious problem as we think about what's next in terms of the stability of the finances of the hospital, especially as we want them to, th to survive and thrive into the into the next round of this. Um, and I mentioned before the, the health and safety of our patients. I'll just mention it again, getting patients back to the hospital. The yeah. Hospitals are safe places to be. We have had incidents of stroke down 50%, heart disease down 50%, appendicitis down 20%. That does not mean those things weren't occurring. It just means people weren't presenting. And that's a concern. We are safe, ready, here for you. We wanna make sure patients that need care getting to the hospitals we can take care of. Thanks, Steve. Uh, B, some of the advocacy issues in Albany yes, and Washington for you. Cer certainly, uh, we don't have the PPE issues right now, although we are planning for a fall surge. So, uh, so the governor has issued a requirement that all hospitals have 90 days of PPE. So we're, we're in the process of figuring out how to make that happen, um, but that's, um, it's not in a crisis, fortunately. And uh, really, uh, funding, uh, you know, funding from the federal government. Uh, you know, currently now, and I think the numbers are about to change, uh, the state, uh, because of their response to the uh, coronavirus pandemic, they are more than $13 billion in the hole. So unless they get a bailout from Congress, uh, we're going to have a state deficit. And, uh, and our legislature is coming back virtually this week. Um, they have, they still have not been able to um, implement the budget that they did pass because of the looming deficit. 
and uh, our hospitals uh, have been desperately in need of funds from Congress uh, via the Provider Relief Fund and hopefully this next round of legislation that goes through Congress in the next couple of weeks because as, as Steve said, I don't know what our late, latest numbers are. I wanna say nine or 10 billion in the hole, but you know, since March uh, 18th, the state of New York uh, canceled all elective surgery that has now been gradually turned back on, but they went months without revenue and were paying, you know, eight, nine dollars a mask, um, you know, and uh, and a premium for gowns and gloves and everything else that they had to have. And the financial repercussions are still rippling through the state. So uh, so we, we need federal, you know, financial relief is really where we are. Yeah. Ted, how about you from an advocacy well, perspective? Most everything is funding, funding, and funding, uh, whether it be the PPE loans that uh, uh, these small hospitals need to do, be, be forgiven, whether it's the advanced payments on the Medicaid system, Medicare system. Uh, but as I look forward, you know, we're about ready to go back into a post-election system. Uh, we'll have a new uh, legislature here in Texas in the spring, and everybody is looking for money. And the the, the one place they tend to go, at least in Texas, is take it out of the Medicaid program. We can't do that in this state. Um, and then with some of the things that are ongoing in Washington, whether it's the MFAR rules or other cutbacks, we need to make sure that uh, we stabilize our hospitals. It's proven that these heroes are out there taking care of patients in the hardest of times and our hospitals support them. Uh, and then we can't be subject to cuts. Uh, it's just got to be able to be paid for. As, and you look at something that's just now turning the corner, and we've had uh, remdesivir as an allocation that's basically come as a gift from uh, uh, Gilead, now is going to be having to be paid for. Um, and yet we've got insurance companies already telling them they won't pay for it because it's an experimental drug. So we've got to advocate against those kind of actions. I mean, you can't, uh, you can't put handcuffs on our caregivers in the time of a pandemic. Thanks, Ted. I, you know, a final question that I'd ask uh, each of you to comment on, and it's something we could certainly spend an entire uh, session on, has to do with what in this unprecedented time of COVID has been exposed in terms of health uh, inequities and you know certainly uh, minority groups economically disadvantaged uh, what people of color have experienced specific to COVID there's obviously increased discussion and awareness that's being placed on this be curious to know uh, starting with you Steve you know what what you're starting to see with members having uh, dialogue steps that they're taking on this issue or just steps that you're uh, recommending that the industry uh, start to advance on this important topic yeah thanks paul you know COVID has highlighted uh the the uh decade-long inequities in certain of our urban centers and um enough is enough i mean it has to change and we have to be the change agents of that i mean i think our our healthcare providers are uniquely positioned you know, I mean, it is, it is a, um, as Ted talked about the caregivers, right? Our caregivers, they care for our loved ones. People are sicker than they've ever been before. They go home, they get up, they do it again, and they do it again, and they do it again. And when people walk through the, the doors of a hospital, they get treated. 
And we have to, we have to move that same philosophy towards issues of health equities, issues of systemic racism, issues of white privilege, and we have to have those conversations. And our healthcare providers are uniquely positioned to do that because they are in the communities that need it most. They are the largest employer there, the largest vendor there, the largest, uh, in many ways, purchaser there. And they save lives every day. And so we ought to lead that discussion, not follow it. We ought to start now, we ought to lead it. And we ought to lead it in the next phase of this with vaccinations. Most of our urban centers, at least in Massachusetts, I'm sure it's like this in other places, there's high density. There are folks that are frontline workers or they're service workers, oftentimes on public transportation, taking the subway or the bus. Why don't we flip the switch on this and make communities of color the first communities to receive the vaccination, not the last. It's the right thing to do for health equities, but it's also the right thing to do for public health. So when those two things match, shame on us if we don't do the right thing and begin to change and flip the switch on this today. There is no tomorrow for this. It is today and every day. This has to be something we're talking about, we're working at, we're having uncomfortable and hard conversations, and we're flipping the script and we're making it better for people that work and live in urban centers that have been historically underfunded, underrepresented, and they've been ongoing health inequities. Applaud your conviction to this, D.B. Uh, what are some things you and Haney's are looking at in this issue? Whoop, you're on mute. Uh, first of all, I want to agree with everything that uh, that Steve said. The time is now. Enough is enough. You know, you look at New York's data, and you you know you think about the five boroughs of New York City again, where 95% of the virus was. And uh, the communities of color and the low-income communities were the ones that were most effective because they um, they lived in uh, you know um, crowded housing. They had they were dependent on public transportation, and they were essential workers in that they were working in hotels, they were working in uh, grocery stores, um, and in hospitals, of course. So they were the ones who were most disproportionately affected. And we have to have these conversations. I could not agree with Steve Moore. We ought to be leading, we will be leading these conversations and we will be uh, making sure that we have the tough conversations with our community leaders. I mean, I'm, what I'm doing is uh, we're doing, uh, what we do best is the policy research. I'm meeting with one of my members uh, tomorrow uh, uh, virtually. Uh, who's from Brooklyn, and we're pulling together community leaders to make sure that we can better understand how hospitals can help to address this, you know, structural poverty in a longer-term way. It is absolutely going to take conversation, but it's going to take capital, uh, and we have to have, as as leaders who deal with our respective state budgets and the federal budget, uh, year in and year out, we have to begin to take a stand that uh, more money needs to be allocated for vaccines, for adequate food, for, for adequate housing, so that we are beginning to address um, what we have, what has been all around us. It's obvious, you can see it every single day. We have just chosen not to deal with it. And I think those, I hope those days are done. Ted, your perspective? Yeah, I, I, I agree with both B and Steve. And, and I, I take, this is an opportunity for us also to take advantage of some of the things that have come out of COVID. Telehealth. It's been enormously successful. So how can we push that to the uh, communities of color and, and underserved uh, communities? Um, there's a technology uh, being developed in Dallas, but I'm sure there are a few others in the country that were now able to drive the 
of, of residents or incidents of care down to a, a single block level and find out why, whether it be a food desert or whether it be a community that, that uh, uh, is experiencing a higher than usual amount of disease. Those technologies that we have developed during COVID are, and, and, uh, are certainly available for us to help drive this and identify where the problems are. So let's look to deploying some of the, uh, if you want to say some of the good things that have come out of COVID. Well, on that note, Ted, that might be a good place to uh, wrap things up. And, you know, certainly while these challenges are profound, uh, you know, one of the silver linings I think that we've all seen, you know, have been some of the aspects of where healthcare organizations have been innovating, you know, have been coming together and collaborating and, and all of the models and examples that you know, all three of you have uh, put light on uh, this afternoon. So, so I wanna thank you for your time. Uh, this has been enlightening, it's been enjoyable. And uh, I again wanna thank you for the important roles that uh, each of you play, your teams play. Uh, and I uh, wanna just continue to wish you well and, and stay safe, but uh, you, you've given some terrific learnings and I think principles for viewers of this session around aspects of collaboration, of conviction, of leaning in um, by all of the important convening and, and sharing uh, that you're all doing. So uh, with that, thank you uh, for the time that you've given this afternoon. And I want to thank all of our viewers also for uh, tuning in. Stay safe. Right. Uh, Paul, Paul, thank you. I just want to say that, you know, uh, serving members who are driven by the mission of their communities makes it easy. Thank you for that. Thank you, Paul. Okay. Yeah, well, thanks, to all yeah. thank you, guys. And uh, thanks to, to B and Steve. All right. Thanks, Ted. Good to see everybody. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Alrighty. Okay. Bye-bye now. Thank you for tuning in. We invite you to visit wikifer.com to learn more about our expertise and leadership and view our open searches. You can follow Wikifer on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Wikifer. Wikifer makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Reliance on the information provided in this podcast is undertaken at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Third-party materials or the contents of any third-party site referenced in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of Wikifer. Wikifer assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third-party materials or in third-party sites referenced in this podcast or the compliance with applicable laws of such materials and or links referenced herein. Wikifer makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. Wikifer expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.